The talk tonight is about freedom. I'd like to begin with a um, poem by a man from South Africa, a bushman. And uh, in their language, there's a lot of clicks, so I can't pronounce his name very well, but it begins with a click, and then Cabo, that's his name, Click Cabo. And the name of the poem is Click XAM. Premonitions. The alphabet of the Bushmen is written in their bodies. The letters talk and vibrate. The letters move the body of the Bushmen. It orders everybody else to keep quiet. He himself is absolutely still. Then he feels his body softly palpitating on the inside. A dream talks false. A dream can mislead you. But the premonition talks the truth, the pulsing awareness which says, somebody is coming. Especially the pulse in a wound, and you walk and the wound begins to palpitate. Then you can send the children to go and see. Grandpa is in the footpath on his way to you. That is what you feel in the wound. The wound tells you that. Or if your ribs start palpitating, then you take your arrows because you feel the short black hair of the ribs of the springbuck if you climb Brink Hill. Watch closely among the trees and green spruits because the springbuck you have already seen with your body and you feel the sensation of blood on your thigh and calves as if you are already carrying the springbuck home on your back, as if the springbuck is already bleeding down your thighs. That is why I always wait silently for the words of my body. I feel it in my feet, how the animals are sniffing around the hut. I feel it at my skull if they cut off the horns of the hartebeest. I get a sensation down my forehead, all along my nose, like the dark stain of the springbuck snout. I feel my eyes swelling out, like the stains of the springbuck's eyes. When I feel something tingling like fleas, I know my body has seen an ostrich. We lie down in front of the huts. We lie down on the stretched-out hills of Brink Hill. It looks as if we are sleeping, as if we are taking a nap, but we are reading our bodies. We read everything which is moving on the plains down below. The holes at the back of our knees get a feeling, and then we wait, and then everything comes to us. That kind of sensitivity and vulnerability um, we're cultivating in the mindfulness practice and also that ability to know that everything comes to us is an aspect of mindfulness. So this ability to not reach out but not reach in and to stay centered um, It sounds true. 
And it sounds like something um, we really want to be able to do. And yet the reason why it's hard is because each moment is changing. So the first noble truth, what does it mean, you know, this translation of dukkha suffering? The Buddha taught that everything conditioned, everything that takes birth will pass away. And that because of that fleetingness, that we all who take birth on the planet share this great vulnerability. So we, this is what we take birth into, this unreliability of experience. And so that, that we're born into such a delicate, fragile, changing world um, requires this protection, this great strength of mind called mindfulness. And I'd like to just, it's, it's so hard to say one thing about mindfulness. So it's almost like you have to paint an impressionistic picture. Uh, so that the intention to understand rather than to judge our experience. A soft readiness. Soft readiness is probably the most beautiful description of mindfulness. And there's a lot in that, because that means... What does it mean, this readiness? It means that anything can happen. And this is the, 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 the meaning of dukkha. One of the meanings of dukkha is this oppressiveness of experience, because we never know what's going to happen. But it's also something that really brings us together, all beings. So this intention to understand rather than to judge is what purifies our motivation. The more we understand that that's what we're doing, the more we apply, you know, that... (laughs) I mean, mostly what we see when when we practice is what? The judging mind. I mean, you know, it's just like it's endless. We walk into the dining room... And it's like a judging factory, you know. It's like, how much food did I take? How much food did they take? You know, did I take too much? Not enough. Um, you know, just you just you just feel what's going on in there. Uh, and one of the reasons we ask people not to look around, but to really seclude themselves through their eye door, is not not to get rid of judgment but to have enough concentration and enough seclusion so that we'll see the judgment clearly. You know, so that if you seclude yourself when you walk out of the doorways here, you'll probably just notice people's sandals. And it's, you can just notice the judgments, yeah, with the sandals. <laughs> you can fall in love with somebody here by just watching the bottom of their pants. You know, really, and that's what we're meant to be doing. We seclude ourselves enough to see how easily we can hate somebody because they have the wrong shoes. You know, and that's, it's not to hate ourselves for that, but to just to see how when we look, there's a conditioned judgment. That's how quick it happens. And again, it's not, it's like this whole sense of the intention to understand rather than to judge, is what this is all about. That's the freedom, and that's the purification of the motivation. Another description of mindfulness, wordless gentleness. So we can hear in these descriptions that that softness, 
the heart needs to be soft because life is moving. If there's any rigidity, we'll get stuck. There'll be that resistance. So wordless gentleness, again, that's when we start really dropping in to a non-conceptual awareness. So of course the word, oh, that's a bird, will come up when we see a bird. But then we try to just come back to just the pure seeing, the pure receiving of the color and form. You might be hearing my voice right now, oh, that's Michelle. But then we shift back to, oh, what is a Michelle free from any past ideas? And, you know, we know, okay, I think I know what my hand is. If we think we know what our hand is, we won't experience it. So when we get caught in analysis or intellectual understanding, it can become a prison for us. There's no need to reject it. It's what's allowed us to function in the world. But then that prison of just being caught in words, the head, I know this, I know that, you know, it's like, and then there's no ability to explore. So the whole of the practice, the art of it, is learning when to concentrate, to come to stillness, that rest, which builds up the energy enough to apply mindfulness, the ability to explore our moment-to-moment experience. So half of the practice, yes, is learning how to come to stillness, but that's not the whole thing. It's not just about being able to be with a breath or a sound. That's, that's just the beginning, and that's the skillful means enough to then explore without judgment and also without analysis, intellectual analysis. So this practice is called insight meditation. It's the insight is coming from a non-intellectual investigation. And I'll describe that a little bit more. It's a dropping into a wordless experience. And it's, it's an aha. Insight is like, oh, we realize, oh, impermanence. But it's not like something that we figure it out in the head. It's by being with whatever, the sound of the chair creaking right now and then passing. And there's this, like, it's so profound. There's so many levels to understanding just what the Buddha was talking about with the first noble truth. So pure motivation, when that starts to take hold within our heart, is when we really start um, to relate to each moment equally. We'd start, we'd relate to despair, the experience of despair, as equally as seeing a fawn jump across path. And, you know, we know. How much do we go, oh, oh no, not despair. Right? We don't go, oh, no, a f- oh, no, a fawn's jumping across the path. <laughs> you know, and this is, this, is, this is why this is hard, because a fawn jumping across the path, well, that's pretty much a piece of cake. Unless, you know, you're in that driven overwhelm that often we do in our culture, and we think, oh, that's a fawn, and we don't pay attention to it. That's an aspect of suffering. We miss the experience. But then, oh, oh no, not despair, and then, oh, we miss that experience. 
There's a great line from Pablo Neruda, a poem where he says, I came to this world to live. And did we? And what does that mean, you know, to really live? Well, I think it's when we're free, when we have the ability to bring wisdom and compassion to each moment of our experience equally. So when we can apply mindfulness, we're learning to um, relate to each experience with wisdom or compassion. That's what we're learning. Or we're learning to relate to each experience with, uh, with a sense of connection, receptivity, but non-attachment. And in the course of the instruction, you can hear we're learning to relate to sound. We're practicing listening. We're practicing being aware of hearing with wisdom and compassion. That's freedom. We're learning it with each sense store, with breath, with body, with thought, with emotion, and with knowing itself, with consciousness itself. And at times when things get quiet, we get closer to the unconditioned, to not knowing what's happening. Because life is moving so quickly, when you really pay attention to it, it's actually disappearing. And it it starts to be that we come to stillness through being okay with not knowing. When I was in Burma this this year, um, we have a a course that we teach in Upper Burma outside of Mandalay in the Sagain Hills, which is known as the spiritual heart of Burma. Um, And we have a hospital project and build schools. And um, one of these young people that I've been um, working with over the years, he came to live with me in Hawaii when he was 15, and he's now 24, and he's been in Burma twice. He's a, he's a monk now, and he's fluent in Burmese and Pali, and he's just kind of flying past. It's great, and uh, he he really he's a, he's really into the practice, and he's also really into the um, scholarly aspect of it. It's, it's quite interesting. And what's wonderful for me, who I'm still tripping over hello and goodbye <laughs> in terms of my Burmese, um, I love to go there now with him. And he, we can travel into the hills and meet all these hidden great beings, you know, nuns and monks and householders, and um, he can translate. So this year, uh, <laughs> we met this... Sayadaw, who it's like a great teacher, great noble one, um, that is much more like a personality like I am. And often the Sayadaws I've worked with are sort of my opposite type. Um, so it was fun to meet someone more like um, me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I asked him about, well, what, you know, what do you pay attention to, you know? And <laughs> and he said, you know, all a lot of my practice was really, you know, learning how to be mindful of the four foundations of mindfulness: body, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral feelings. This isn't emotion, but the um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings that come with each moment of consciousness, vedana, 
and then um, consciousness, knowing, and all the ways that knowing can be colored by anger or colored by loving-kindness or gratitude or peace. And then all the dhammas, all the, all the um, hindrances, seven factors of enlightenment. And what's so wonderful about, I think, the Buddha's teaching is how inclusive it is. You know, where it, again, it's not just about the breath. It's meant to include anything that happens in the universe that we can bring wisdom and compassion to these experiences. And so he said, yeah, I did all that. And now it's like I live in this orchard. And that every moment it's like I'm eating a delicious fruit. And it was just such a different way of describing the practice that I'd ever heard. It was just this feeling of utter abundance. You know, that we have, any moment, we have this luscious opportunity to, to just have this ability to have wisdom and compassion, whether it is sadness or the sound. That the, here is this abundance of opportunity for freedom, and he's just, just living in this world of total freedom and compassion. Not by getting rid of anything, but including everything, which is the end of suffering. So we're born into this world of unpleasant, pleasant, neutral feeling. And this means that with each moment of consciousness, so this includes the six sense doors with sound, taste, touch, smell, thought, you know, with the the six sense doors, as, as you explore your moment-to-moment experience, check it out. It's like you never know whether the next moment, moment is going to be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And this is why the Buddha taught that the world rests on suffering. So again, remembering that that we never know what's going to happen. This this intense vulnerability is what um, is difficult for us to open to moment by moment. And we might be able to do it for a few minutes, and then something unpleasant might happen, and we might resist. And that's okay. It's learning that disconnecting is okay, just as important as connecting. We learn to connect with disconnection. So our usual conditioned way of relating to change, you know, this is, this is our defense system. What we learn to do is to try to control it. Yeah? There's a controller, me. That's what we call a separate self. Me is a manipulator, a controller. And there are only temporary moments. What I would also encourage you to do is really explore when you feel like a separate self. And I can say it's the moments when we're attempting to push away what is unpleasant and we're not aware of it. It might be a mild irritation. You know, that feeling when we're just a little bit off, like that slight dissatisfaction versus really being angry or enraged. And then there's the ability to... um, be mindful of that and to learn that when we become caring about that, when we value pain, 
that's really the beginning of freedom, when we start valuing the pain as an opportunity to develop more and more liberation. We tend to resist pain, so that's why it's such a golden opportunity to be free when pain arises. So when we protect ourselves through the appearance of anything painful, through irritation, aversion, fear, anger, rage, we suffer if we're identified with it. That's the Buddhist teaching. And the same with the pleasant. When the pleasant is happening and we're not aware of it, you know when you think you're being okay with pleasant and you know it's going on and then it's like, oh, <laughs> I really like this. You know, and there's an opportunity to notice enjoyment or get lost in it. And this is again an exploration of being a separate self because it's so interesting. The pleasant isn't the problem nor is the unpleasant the problem. It's that sense of sort of like not wanting to face that we're actually getting attached, you know? And it's, that, it's just like, and we don't want to admit it, right? You know, no, I'm just, I'm really being aware of the pleasant, you know? And then it's like, and then I would encourage you again to look at this and to see, can we kind of just detach a little bit enough to go, oh, enjoyment. And if we're mindful of that, there's no problem. And then if we're not mindful of enjoyment, usually it's like, oh, I really like this. I want this to last forever. (laughs) You know? And that's when it starts to be clinging and holding on. And, you know, when you're with a person, I call it cling-on attack. You know, it's like, (laughs) oh! And then usually the other person doesn't enjoy that. Yeah. It doesn't feel like love. It feels like a Klingon attack. <laughs> so our attempts to control what is uncontrollable is suffering. So what we learn in the meditation practice is we replace our old strategies of manipulation, of fear, you know, of anger of irritation, of clinging, holding on. We replace those strategies with mindfulness, with loving-kindness, with compassion, with gratitude. Another way to describe mindfulness, and this is not a checklist, but just um, it can help us to get a, a sense of fathoming. There's many aspects to mindfulness, so to, to kind of fathom it, You know when you're kind of asleep at the wheel and you don't really know what's happening? Um, (laughs) One way that I I just, I I was sick and, um, when was it? I think, yeah, toward the end of April and somebody gave me all these Calvin and Hobbes books, the cartoon, and there was a, Calvin's a little boy that's always getting into trouble and Hobbes is a stuffed animal and they, you know, that's his, um, so-called imaginary friend and Calvin is sitting in front of a television um, with his stomach hanging out and kind of drooling and he's describing to Hobbes his his stuffed animal how you know being passive and inert is such a wonderful thing (laughs) (laughs) that isn't mindfulness you know that it isn't passivity it isn't it isn't inert and if you're just sitting there it can look like 
well, what's going on with somebody, yeah? And somebody can be unconscious, but that isn't mindfulness. It's, it's when there is this alertness. And so that ability to recognize what happens is the first part of a moment of mindfulness. So even when it's just, you know when you're sort of out of it and you hear something and it's like, oh, hearing. That's important. You know there's a huge difference between being asleep at the wheel and going, ah, that's recognition and that's the beginning of getting here. And then the next next aspect is acceptance. And then that's a huge shift to go from recognition to say there's sadness and to be able to go, oh, it's okay. Or say there's knee pain, you know, or some chronic pain, which is harder to deal with, or some chronic emotional pain, to be able to, you know, to instead of resist it, to go, oh, allow it, to accept it. And that's a lot. And then when there's enough energy, and this again is why we really work with, with, coming to stillness through a primary object and just resting the attention lightly, if there's enough energy sometimes, there's interest. And you can't make interest happen, but you know how wonderful it is when you become interested in something. And it's not like, it doesn't have to be this over-exuberance or over-excitement, it can be calm, and actually it often is. It's this kind of falling deeper in and being kind of quiet, and there's this very subtle shift of being interested in the breath versus like, I've seen this before. (laughs) You know, know, and that there's, it feels wonderful. And then the last aspect that um, I wanted to describe tonight is non-identification. You know, so the, f- the first three are really ways in which the attention connects with the experience. And the last one is a way in which it, 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 there's a non-attachment. And they're both really important. Non-identification is when we're not taking the experience personally. And that's often the hardest for us to understand. Although, some people tend to move toward that more easily, non-identification. And they find their way to, they find their way to acceptance through non-identification. And some people tend to find their way to non-identification through acceptance. And it really doesn't matter. It's just a matter of kind of sensing that sometimes for us to, to not take sadness personally or to not take anger personally, to not take um, wanting personally, you know, can be challenging. But we might be still accepting. And when we... Um, when we kind of step back from our experience, this isn't meant to be a cold observation. And, and if, if, if what's happening in your practice, if it feels like it's becoming a cold observation, it could be that the attention isn't connecting enough. And we can control and manipulate in many ways. So we can control our experience through detaching and not being connected enough. And sometimes we can control through connecting. Sometimes we can go too closely into experience. Like, 
we all know what it's like to be angry and to get so close into it that we're believing the thoughts. And you know how great it is to feel righteous. You know, I mean, sometimes it can, even though anger is unpleasant, it can feel really good to feel righter and righter and righter, yeah? And, you know, we can just become the lawyer, the judge, (laughs) the verdict. (laughs) But we really haven't done much about taking responsibility for feeling the anger and then knowing what to do with it. And so this can be... um, It's so important to try to understand that balance of really connecting recognition, acceptance, interest, and also the non-attachment, the non-identification. And it's very important to know that this isn't about denial or indifference or passivity. And I'd like to give an example of that in... um, Two years ago, a dear friend of mine with HIV um, had a really serious um, bout with a a very difficult um, pneumonia. And he lives on the big island of Hawaii. And he was so sick that they helicoptered him over to Honolulu. Uh, And for some reason, I just happened to be home. And I had company. I didn't know. I didn't know at all that he was sick, and I got a phone call early that morning. And I was supposed to have been going over to the Big Island with some company, and so he asked me to come down to the hospital. So I said, okay, and I I just thought I was going down for a little visit. (laughs) And I got there, and he was, he, he almost died in my arms. It was just so really awful. It's like he was helicoptered in. He wasn't put into intensive care. And I don't know much about nursing, but um, I asked the nurses what all his vital signs meant. And hardly anybody was checking in on him. Um, And he wasn't set up with a catheter. And every time he... I was helping him go to the bathroom, and his numbers would just plummet down to, to insanely ridiculous. And I'm like... I'd say to him, you know, do you want to know what your numbers are? And he's like, don't tell me. You know, and I, I realized that it was way beyond the two of us to um, deal with what was happening. And it was so serious. And I kept going out to the nurses, doctors. Nobody was listening to me. Mindfulness in this case was not passivity. And it was very hard for me to do this, but I realized that I had to take serious action. I had to be fierce. I went out in the corridor and I just started screaming at the top of my lungs. I just scream. I just wouldn't stop. And and nobody. I mean, it was amazing what it took to get attention. And this doctor came by and I actually tackled him. <laughs> I was not about to let my friend die, you know. And it was like. I just did the best I could. I still had to let control of the result. But you see, we, this, it's really important to know that mindfulness means you do the best you can to connect, and then you have to let go of control of the result. And that's hard for us. It would be much easier if we said, do the best you can, but control. Yeah? Or don't do anything. But this isn't as easy to, to, to be able to really connect with our experience and then let it be, let things be. 
So that's a paradox that is also an aspect of dukkha. I had a um, friend, student, that um, last year he came to a retreat. And you know how sometimes getting to a retreat seems like there's a few obstacles (laughs) away? I'm sure you all remember them well. Uh, And this day, um, (laughs) he actually uh, ran over his wife's computer. He was trying to get to the retreat, and somehow she had dropped it out right in front, and he ran over a computer, and then, and then on top of it, he was trying to get there, and he had a flat tire. You know, it was just like really just difficult. And when he got to the retreat the next day, he had this anxiety attack. And it was just kind of thing, like Joseph says, if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> uh, and he's always had his karmic knot is working with fear. Um, and so he was sitting in the hall in the afternoon having this anxiety attack and he was doing everything he could to talk himself out of it. You know how we do that? This is resistance. You know, we try to be, we try to be rational about it and fear usually isn't rational. So he was doing everything he could, like, you know, we do to, to resist it, to talk ourselves out of it. And then he had this thought, well, maybe I should try to be mindful of it. Have you ever had that experience? You know, we, you know, it's just so interesting because this might seem not so funny, but it's true because um, that thought, maybe I should try to be mindful of it, he actually had this very deep experience. He connected. He dropped into it. Free from any past idea about it, he became interested. What is it? What is fear? And that ability to go into your body and bring this ability to, to say, well, where does it feel tight? Or is there, any, is there any physical experience here? Or what can I just notice the thoughts come and go without identifying with them? And he also had a very deep insight with it that it wasn't personal. All from that sense of like having the courage to just drop into it. And I'd like to read a um, passage from a book that I like a lot called The Golden Key by um, George MacDonald. Great name. <laughs> and it's a story of um, two young beings, uh, Masi, the young boy, and Tangle, the young girl, who end up going on this very deep spiritual journey together, which takes their whole lives. Um, and at the beginning of the book, the young boy, um, Masi, finds a golden key. It's a long story, but he finds this key, and then he, he spends the rest of his life trying to figure out what the key is to, and they end up joining up together. And basically, it's a story of them um, understanding what awakening is. You know, the myth, is, the myth that the whole story is really about liberation. So they get separated, and um, she... Uh, has to go talk to the old man of the earth, and then the oldest man of all is the old uh, is the old man of the fire, who is a young child, which is a beautiful description of the oldest man of all. And here she's with the old old man of the earth, and she's trying to get to the old man of the fire for advice. 
Um, So she says to him, Tell me the way to the country where the shadows fall. Ah, that I do not know. I only dream about it myself. I see its shadows sometimes in my mirror. The way to it I do not know. But I think the old man of the fire must know. He is much older than I. He is the oldest man of all. Where does he live? I will show you the way to his place. I never saw him myself. So saying, the young man rose and then stood for a while gazing at Tangle. I wish I could see that country too, he said, but I must mind my work, a bodhisattva. (laughs) So he led her to the side of the cave and told her to lay her ear against the wall. What do you hear, he asked. I hear the sound of a great water running inside the rock. That river runs down to the dwelling of the oldest man of all, the old man of the fire. I wish I could go to see him, but I must mind my work. That river is the only way to him. Then the old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave, raised a huge stone from it, and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said, but there are no stairs. You must throw yourself in. There is no other way. That's connecting. And that's why it takes so much courage. That's why we build up the energy with the primary objects, you know, so that there's enough lightness of being here. And you know the difference between being lost in fantasy, which usually drains energy, it's not to judge it, but why we train the mind to be more with ease and calm with a neutral object of some sort is again to build up enough energy, which in this tradition, energy translates as courage. And it's that courage to drop in. And then we... You know, that can be fleeting. That we'll have those sweet moments where we do drop in. And then we um, go through a purification process again. Hmm. So, for example, the wanting mind. How would it work to jump in? How would, how would it work to apply mindfulness? Well, we tend to know what happens when we don't. Yeah? Say wanting something or somebody comes up. Now, repression would be to just say, that's not an okay experience, and push it away. Yeah? And ignore it or repress it. And that's not mindfulness. Or we can get caught up in the object of what we're wanting and think that that's going to help. It's similar to anger, where we get righter and righter, but we don't drop into the actual physical sensations and the thoughts themselves. So wanting is similar. How do we be mindful of it? First, it's recognizing it. You know how you can get caught in wanting somebody or something as a way maybe to avoid loneliness? Um, But the difference between being caught up in it and going, oh, it's simply wanting. It's okay. 
And that shift again is huge. And then to accept that it's an okay experience, that we don't have to get rid of it. And then to become interested in it. Well, what is it? The stuff that makes the world so crazy. Can we take responsibility for having that experience? And then to go, oh, it doesn't have to refer back to an I, me, or mine. It's just this experience, like the breath. It takes birth, it has a life, and it disappears. And we actually can recognize the birth, life, and death of wanting. If we don't resist it, it will come and go by itself. And I I mean, I can tell you over and over, when I have that experience where wanting is okay and it just comes and goes by itself, that there's no getting caught up in any kind of object of it, it's so liberating. That knowing that it's totally okay because you're protected by the mindfulness. It's like we're imperturbable. We're imperturbable so we don't have to get rid of it. We don't have to indulge it. I'd like to read part of a um, song from a group called the Flaming Lips um, that I think really um, says what happens when we do get caught in wanting. And this is a voice. The voice is um, very melancholy. And I think there's an, abs- uh, there's an aspect to mel- of melancholy to understanding impermanence. And there's an aspect of melancholy to sort of letting go of what we're wanting and really letting that experience come and go by itself. It's very sweet when we're able to do it. And the renunciation at first can feel like a kind of um, melancholy. So the song is quite beautiful, and the words are, I was waiting on a moment, but that moment never came. All the billion other moments were just slipping on away. I must have been drifting. I was just ego tripping. I was wanting you to love me, but your loving never came. All the other love around me was just wasting all away. I must have been drifting, was just wasting all away, just ego tripping. I mean, doesn't that get it? (laughs) We're waiting for those perfect moments and we reject the rest of our experience. We're waiting for that perfect love and we reject all the love of our friends. You know, it's just like so beautiful. You know, and it's not, you know, when you tell people you're going on a uh, retreat, so many people who don't know what it's about will say, oh, have a great vacation. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, you come here and you think the first few days, oh, I could have been on vacation. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's, to, again, to really value the pain um, as a way of knowing that this is worth it. It's worth everything to be free, and that it requires going through it and going through it, jumping in, jumping in. So to have a real relationship of truth with ourself or a real relationship of truth with another, we can't be busy trying to get something. 
or we're, we can't be rescuing. We're trying, or trying to get better, or to try to improve. If we want true connection based on the truth, we have to value the fleetingness of life. We have to value disappointment. We have to value loss. We have to value the pain as well as the joy as part of the natural flow of things. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be lost. It's okay to resist. And a very simple example of this is, say, um, when I was teaching a young adult retreat recently, um, there had been a lot of rain. And then one morning, the sun came out, just fleetingly. (laughs) And then it started pouring again. Um, And so mindfulness practice can seem like, say it starts raining like that or whatever, something we don't want. And we say, oh, I wish it was raining. Is mindfulness saying, it's, you know, um, can I be cool with it raining? Or is it realizing that we say, oh no, I'm not cool with it being raining. Is that mindfulness? Or is mindfulness being okay with being pissed that it's raining? You know, this is really an important question. Because if we think mindfulness is making it be okay that it's raining, and it's not okay that it's raining with us, then that's really missing the point. And that's not freedom. So it's really being able to be okay with however it's happening and that it's being cool with being upset that it's raining if that's what's happening. And that's being with the natural flow of things. It's not trying to insert some agenda on top of things and saying that's mindfulness. So basically the practice is being cool with not being cool with it if that's what's happening. <laughs> that's falling into. It's like jumping into. It's jumping into the natural flow of things and not taking it personally that we're, we're upset. I mean, so much of what I see with people at the beginning of a retreat is just not wanting to be with aversion and doing everything we can control to do to control that experience not coming up. And eventually it will. It's designed for it. <laughs> if this practice was designed to avoid aversion, you'd be sitting from 11 to 12, and that would be it. <laughs> you can So you see, it's not designed to avoid sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, attachment, attachment or doubt. It's designed to face it and to face them on deeper and deeper levels. That's how we get free, is by valuing the pain of that and seeing that we can recognize it, accept it, be interested in it, not take it personally. And when we do drop into the natural flow of things, when we go, oh, it's just fear, or oh, it's just whatever, the sweetness of those moments, the overcoming of the difficult, the overcoming of dukkha, is wordless. And it's a totally soft, released state. You know, and that's the heart's release. And we realize that whatever is happening is just enough. 
we don't have to make anything happen. That, that dropping into the natural flow of things can't come by making it happen. It comes from just like that descript- description. There are no stairs. You just drop in. Sometimes it can feel in life that things aren't always going our way. And I'd like to end with a little story about that from my own life um, recently. And there was a very important retreat that I felt was important um, that I taught when I left Spirit Rock in early May this year after teaching the women's retreat. And it was a retreat for um, 19 to 30-year-olds of a group of um, young people I've been working with over the years. And one of the young people's um, grandparents offered this place on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, And at the same time, my family, who didn't consult me, and they never do in these circumstances, planned this huge family reunion for the same time period. And um, they just happened to live like across the ocean, you know, in Falmouth where the ferry is. And so... It was really interesting for me because over the years, me moving into what I do, they don't really understand it. You know, and my, one of my nieces is fundamentalist Christian, and um, we have this really deep connection. Like, I, I saved her life, and she knows it. You know, my sister, when she was 15, had three kids, and couldn't handle it, and I raised them. And so we're very close. Um, but there's also you know, they've gotten into their own worlds. And the other two kids are much more open to what I do, but everybody was there, you know, the ex-brother-in-law, you know, like, you know, all the kids, all the children, all the, even I have a, like, I'm like a great-grandmother, my, my oldest niece who calls me mom, her daughter just had a daughter. Um, so it's like, it's important for me to stay connected with them, and it was also really important for me to be at this retreat. Um, so I felt conflicted, and I decided to um, take this truck over that somebody had lent us generously um, and just leave it on, in the parking lot so that we could just come over by ferry a couple days later and I'll leave. Um, so I had it timed perfectly. <laughs> I had like one of those probably ridiculous ideas that I had that I could time all this perfectly. Um, and I, you know, got across the ferry. It all went, it ran really well on the way over. You know, I, like everything just felt like the oceans parted, you know, the waters parted. Everything was going my way. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know? Then I got there and kind of got all caught up in the big party. And um, my, one of my great nieces is very close to me. She's like my soulmate. And um, she kept saying, one more dance, because I'm the only person who'll dance and play with her. And I'm like... Oh, I don't know, you know, I really got to go. And I was only there for two hours, and nobody understands it in my family. And I was trying to sleep out, and she has this fit, you know, just this major fit. And I'm like, oh, no. Because <laughs> I was timed it for the last ferry. I only had one more ferry. And I really felt, I really had to be back. Um, so I finally get in the car, and I start driving, and I got behind a drunk driver. And this was Memorial Day weekend, which I hadn't thought that part out. You know how there's always some... <laughs> in the Persian rug, you know, there's just this one little glitch. And this, this began 
the nightmare. You know, it's just like I started, and I was, get, you know, I have this condition. My father was a race car driver, and he taught me to drive like that. Yeah, so <laughs> on top of it, like I also get kind of impatient, and you know, and this driver was just impossible. You know, I couldn't pass. You know, it was just going slower and slower, and then I decided to take this detour, which I didn't know my way around there. So I took this detour to try to avoid, you know, here it goes, of avoid the drunk driver, and I got lost. And then, oh, and it was, it was really bad. And it was getting dark and dark, you know, and it's, even though it's, you know, light late up there, it started to get dark. And then I finally had to stop at this little store and ask directions, and I'm really late. And so I'm driving really fast, and I get to this, there's this big, huge parking lot that you have to park your cars and take a bus because it's all so crowded. So I pull into the parking lot, and the atmosphere there is kind of thick and agitated, but I just drove through, and I got up to this local guy that, you know, kind of like my family, they're very negative, and he's, I, uh, you know, they rolled down the window, I rolled down the window, and he said, um, you don't have a chance in hell. <laughs> I mean, it's like, forget it. Honey. Forget it, honey. And I'm like, oh, you know. And then I said, well, is there like a parking place? And he said, well, there just happens to be one way down there, you know. You don't, you don't stand a chance. So, like, I, I went down there and I had this big truck, and I'm not exactly great at little parking places. And it was like up in up the bank, and it was just, you know, you feel like the obstacles have just, they're getting to you, right? I mean, I was just like, oh. And I couldn't do it. And I was outside the car, the truck, and I was almost crying. And this is hysterical. This old man comes driving up with this golf cart, you know, and there's no one around. There's no one around. And he, it's like surreal, surreal. He comes driving up. And I, I begged him. I said, could you park this truck? <laughs> and he said, I'm sorry, ma'am. It's against the law. <laughs> we could be sued. And I won't sue you. <laughs> like, I promise. I'll, I'll give you my blood, you know, just, like, park the car. And he wouldn't do it. So, like, so he, he guided it. Oh, you know, cut the wheel this way, cut the wheel this way. You know, it's taking forever. And this is when, you know, I went on overwhelm. You know, up to that point, I felt like I was making it. And then, you know that feeling where you just lose it? So I just, I lost it, you know. <laughs> I finally get it parked, and we, he said, it's not safe around here, you can't walk by yourself. So we drive in the golf cart. <laughs> <laughs> All the way to the bus, which is really far. And then, I mean, I think it's a disaster. And I get on the bus, and... Every single person, it's totally crowded, there's no room for me. And the atmosphere in there was just like total hatred. They hated me. I mean, it was just like, it was so aversive. It's just that they had been waiting for this. They'd been waiting for me, for, for the park, car to get parked and the whole thing. And they're going to miss the ferry, right? You know, so they were sitting there and it was just like so <laughs> aversive. And the bus driver was mad and I was like... Hi. <laughs> and what was really interesting was that I found out finally when people relaxed a little and the bus driver drove like 80 miles an hour. It was terrifying. People were terrified, but we made it. But what I found out, which was really interesting, I thought nothing was going right, right? Well, what happened was that I was the only person allowed to park in that parking lot. And they all were made to park 
like 10 miles, like things were so crowded in Memorial Day, and they were all made to park 10 miles away. So if I hadn't been behind the drunk driver and gotten lost, I wouldn't have made the ferry because they, I would have gotten there so late, like a lot of other people probably, and they were forced to drive 10 miles away and I would have made it. And it was just like, oh, I was being protected. <laughs> And there's this great Native American saying, you know, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while great winds are carrying me across the sky. You know, and we keep forgetting it. You know, it's just like we keep forgetting that the spirits are with us. And sometimes when it's hard, it's meant to be that way. So let's sit for a few minutes. This is from Virginia Woolf. Dream the recurring dream that has haunted the human mind since the beginning of time, the dream of peace, the dream of freedom. Please continue your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.